This morning we will be looking at Zechariah chapter 4. It is the fifth vision in the fourth chapter, the fifth vision of Zechariah for those of you that are keeping score at home. Five visions. And if you would now pay, please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right, of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts, who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone and shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees and beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would make clear and plain to us Your Word. That in Your Word we would see the power of Your Spirit. That in Your Word we would be drawn to the Son. Lord, we ask that You would bless us by your word and your spirit. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I'd like to ask you 
a question this morning as we begin. It's the kind of question that I want you to answer in your head and not out loud. Because that way I know there will be a more honest answer. Do you ever feel that you are just not up for it? Do you ever feel like you just can't even get started? That there's no reason to start? The task is just too big. Your ability is too small. What's before you is too confusing. And sometimes it's better to just sit and let things go on by. You see, the truth is, you may have answered in your head, and it's my belief that there's probably near unanimity here in this room. For all of us, there has been a time in which we just simply do not feel up to it. We don't think we can take on the task that is at hand. And we wonder what we could possibly do. And sometimes I think we wonder if there's something wrong with us. If we're not the right kind of believer. If we're not doing the right kinds of things. But this morning, Zechariah chapter 4 has an answer for us. It has an answer for us that tells us that it is all right not to feel up to it because we're not up to it. We don't have the ability that is required. But the good news of the gospel is that the Lord our God is mighty. And He is at work, not just in days of old, not just in the scripture, but in our lives as well. And so this morning, as we look through the fifth vision that has come to the prophet Zechariah, there are three images that come to the forefront. And I'd like to look in turn at each one, because each one tells us something about ourselves and the Christian life. The very first thing we see is a lampstand. It's an unusual lampstand that we'll explore in just a moment. The second thing that we read about is a mountain. A mountain before Zerubbabel. The third thing that we see are two olive trees that stand beside the lampstand. And so, Lord willing, we will explore each of these images and determine what the Lord would speak to us through them. A lampstand, a mountain, and two olive trees. Let's begin then by opening up chapter 4. This is the fifth vision, as we have said, that has come to Zechariah. Now, after all, it has been a pretty busy night for Zechariah. He's already been through four visions. Four visions that have been about God's protection and His acceptance of His people. And now, Zechariah needs to be roused a bit. Now, he's not actually asleep. I don't think it's possible to actually fall asleep on an angel. It says that he is roused like one who is woken from sleep. And I think what's going on here is Zechariah is just plain and simple, worn out by what he's seen. He's in that kind of half-conscious state that we sometimes get to when we've stayed up longer than we should and haven't hit the pillow yet. Sometimes we need to have our shoulders shook. Or someone raises their voice to get our attention and we kind of snap too. Perhaps even you've experienced this kind of thing where you're sitting in a chair and you begin to do that bob. 
You wake yourself up. That's what Zechariah needs here because so much has just come upon him. There's been so much to think about, so much to see, so much that he needs to tell. And the angel rouses him by saying, look, what do you see? And what he sees, he describes as a lampstand. Now let me see if I can describe it a bit for you so you can have an image in your mind. It is a lampstand of gold. And it is probably most similar to what is often called a menorah. You know what a menorah looks like, I think. It has become the international pictorial symbol of Hanukkah. You know, when you want to represent Christmas, you have a tree. When you want to represent Hanukkah, you have a menorah. And that's that kind of lamp that has a lamp right up the center and then three strands on either side of lamps for a total of seven. And you would light seven candles, and that would be a lampstand to throw light. But that's not exactly what is going on here. That's the kind of lamp that we would commonly understand. And actually, Solomon had ten of those in the temple. But there was no lamp as grand as this in the temple. As Zechariah describes it, it does indeed have the seven strands. And on top of each of the seven strands is another lamp with seven lips or seven areas for wicks to be in. And so if you can picture it, there are the seven stems with seven things on top of them with seven wicks each, 49 lights total. And above it all, a big bowl feeding oil into the lamp so that it would constantly burn and flow. And next to the lamp are two olive trees feeding oil into the bowl. You could just imagine if you were Zechariah and you were sleepy and you were out in the dark and you were afraid of what was going to happen and not knowing what would come next to the people of God, that this would be a blazing sight of glory before you. Unlike anything you had ever seen. And so Zechariah asks what you and I would ask. What is it? What does it mean? Why is this lamp here in front of me? And then the angel does something interesting. I find that this often happens in our homes. You know, children will ask questions earnestly desiring an answer. Something like, what will we have for dessert tonight after dinner? And the response will come back, you need to clean off the table so we can set dinner. Or you need to clean your room. You know, the response that comes from mom and dad doesn't answer the question. Now, it's pertinent, but let's face it, young people, that's frustrating, right? You just wanted to know what was for dessert. And here you got a chore. You see, that's what's happening to Zechariah. He says, tell me about this lampstand. What is going on here? And the answer has... It's seemingly nothing to do with the lamp. But it really does. You see, the answer that comes back is, here is the word of the Lord for Zerubbabel. Well, that's well and good. That then piques our interest, and now we have to ask another question. Who's Zerubbabel? And why are we talking about him? His name's hard to say. Who is this guy? Zerubbabel was the governor of God's people in Jerusalem and the environment. He was 
the man who was the leader. He was leading up the building project on the temple. He was the one that the Israelites looked to for leadership and hope. And he was sort of a king. Now, he wasn't an actual king because there's no kingdom here in Jerusalem. They're under the authority of the Persian Empire. But he was, as a matter of fact, the grandson of the last king of Judah. So he comes from a royal family, and he's the leader, he's the governor, so he's, he's sort of a king. But he's a guy who needs a whole lot of help. Imagine if you are the leader of a people, a small group of people who have come back from Babylon. Now you have to remember that the city of Babylon was one of the best cities in all of the ancient world. One of the great wonders of Babylon was the great hanging gardens. There were marvelous things to see. There were things that were made of polished silver and gold, a marble. There was so much wonder in the city of Babylon. And now here, these people have left Babylon because they have been told to go home and to rebuild the promised land. And they get home and it looks like a tornado hit the place. There aren't two stones on top of each other. The buildings have all been flattened. It looks like a hurricane has come through. It looks like ground zero at 9-11 over the whole city. They've arrived back 18 years ago to a shattered city. And it's hard just to survive and eke out a living, let alone to rebuild a temple, to rebuild something that had been one of the wonders of the ancient world. When you have an opportunity, you can go back and read the beginning of 1 Kings and read 1 Chronicles and see the description of the temple with all of its splendor, with gold and silver and cedar and marble and all of the wondrous things that describe this building. And now here, they're standing amid a bunch of rocks, not sure what to do. But wait, it gets worse. There are people around them who are hostile and want to see them fail and are trying to find ways to trick them into failing even worse. But wait, it gets worse because the people of God are discouraged. Morale is down and energy is low. Zerubbabel's having a hard time just getting them off the couch. They're so depressed by their situation. Do you ever feel that way? Like the task is so large. Like there are so many things lined up against you. Like you'd just rather sit for a while than do anything. Because you're not sure you can undertake what's before you. Perhaps you even feel that way about your life. You wonder whether you can possibly undertake the task that's in front of you. You know, we see this very often at this time of year. The new year is the time when it comes for many of us to decide we're going to read through the Bible in a year. And then we realize how big the Bible is. And then we think about all the parts in the Bible that are confusing. And then we think about all the parts in the Bible that, quite frankly, are not incredibly exciting. You know those sections that describe the color of the yarn that is used to make the curtains of the tabernacle? 
Those sections that talk about how long the beard of the priest should be. And we think about all of these things and it makes us exhausted just thinking about it. Well, you see, there's a message that God has for Zechariah and Zerubbabel and it's a message that he brings to you and to me also. And that message is, press on, go ahead. You see, God tells him not to worry. And the interesting thing is, God does not say what we often say as we coach Little League or youth sports. You can do it, come on, you can do it. God doesn't say that at all. As a matter of fact, he says the exact opposite. He says, it doesn't matter how much power you have. It doesn't matter how much strength you have. It doesn't matter how much might is before you. It is not by power, not by strength, but by my spirit that this will happen. You see, the problem did get solved. And I think historically this is an encouragement for us in our own lives. See, it's one thing for the pastor to just say, God will carry you through it. Let me tell you how God carried the Jews through this. You see, they were trying to rebuild this temple. We read this in Ezra 5 and Ezra 6. And those that were around them tried to make life even harder. Their enemies wrote a letter to the pagan king of Persia, Darius, saying, you've got to stop these Jews. They're they're trying to do bad things. They're trying to rebel against you. They're going to keep money against you. If you're smart... King, you will come here and put a stop to it right away. Now you can imagine the spot that that puts the Jews in. They don't have the resources. They don't have the will. And now they're about to have the enemy rain down on them. But something interesting happens. By just a coincidence, Darius decides to check the archives about this temple. By just a coincidence... There is a scroll that speaks of the permission of the Jews to rebuild this temple. Of course, it's not a coincidence. Because you see, what happens is Darius actually orders that not only should the Jews be left alone, but you people that are stirring up trouble writing the letter, you need to provide them with resources, material, and animals. You need to help them finish the temple. You see, God takes what seems to be the worst possible situation and he turns it entirely on its head. And it's not because the Jews sent smart envoys. It's not because there was a powerful alliance that needed to happen. It was solely because the Spirit of God, by his own will, made this happen. Now, if God can do that, can God be involved in your life? Can God get you started? Can God get you over difficulties? Because you see, there's a reason why all of this was done. And it wasn't just to show the power of God. It was also to show the presence of God. Because after all, what is the temple? It's it's God's house. That's actually the Hebrew word for temple is the word for house. It is the place where God's name resided and lived. And you see, God did this because He wanted to be present among His people. It was a vision of God's presence in all of its glory. This wondrous lampstand shining forth with all light, showing that God would push forward and would overcome obstacles and would dwell in the midst of His people. 
You see, ironically, the angel has answered Zechariah's question. That lampstand is a picture of God's presence in their midst, in all of His glory. But it's also more than that. A lamp here is more than just a building. It is more than just a vision of God's presence. It is also a vision of God's people. Because you see, the church has also faced opposition. It's faced opposition throughout the centuries. In a pagan Roman Empire. In Muhammad and the armies of Islam. In heresy. In the Renaissance and in the ages before the Reformation. It faces opposition and difficulty even today all throughout the world. There are many places in the world today where merely to name the name of Christ is to put a target on your back. Is for others to call for your death. How does the church preserve itself and prevail today? This is a real question for the American church, isn't it? We're awfully concerned about government and laws and regulations and society and universities and professors and all the things that go on in our midst. The answer is the same answer that Zechariah got. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. You see, far too often, we as the church of Jesus Christ are looking for avenues of might, looking for avenues of power, thinking that if we just do enough, things will be all right. If we just witness more, if we just raise more money for missionaries, if we just read our Bibles more, if we just pray harder, everything will be good. But the truth is, as much as it is obedience to God, by sharing our faith, by supporting missionaries, by reading our Bibles, by praying to the Lord. That is not where success is found. Success is found in the Spirit of the Lord. What a wonderful picture here we see of God's Spirit. God's Spirit is the oil that makes this lamp light. Throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is described in varying ways as oil. And oil is a very good picture of the work of the Spirit. Because think about what oil does. Oil illuminates, doesn't it? It's what you would use in a lamp to be able to see. But oil also heals, doesn't it? If you have a burn or a wound, you could put oil on it and that will help the pain and the wound. Oil also, especially at this time, adorned and anointed. It made things more beautiful, set them apart. Now, I know it's hard to think that a man would be a better choice simply by having some oil poured over his head. But you need to think about it as being set apart. And the fragrance that would come off the oil, it's like someone wearing the best cologne you've ever smelt. Or the best perfume. It would set you apart. This is what oil does. And this is what God by His Spirit does. He illumines our way. He heals our broken hearts. And He anoints us for work in His kingdom. You see, we need the Spirit in our own lives also. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot come to faith in Jesus Christ. 
We need the Spirit to open our eyes, to renew our minds, to give us hearts of flesh, that as we look at the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross, in the grave, and risen again, it reaches us. It gives us hope. It shows us where our true trust lies. Without the Holy Spirit, we cannot grow in our faith. Without the Spirit, we cannot turn from our sin. It is only by living in the Spirit that we can live as followers of Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Romans 8. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a vision we see in this lampstand. The second image we see is an image of a mountain. It is a mountain that is in front of Zerubbabel. It is a great mountain. And the angel says to it, Who are you, O great mountain? Now, the meaning of the mountain on one level is obvious to us. It is an obstacle. If you've ever been out hiking and you see a large hill or a mountain, you know you are faced with a choice. You can either go around the obstacle, you can either try and climb over the obstacle, or I guess if you had enough dynamite, you could try and blow through the obstacle. But in any event, your life has just been made more difficult. It's something that's stopping you. It's in the way. And this intimates what God's people are experiencing both in Zechariah's day and today. You see, God had promised His grace to the people of God. But right now, that was hard for the Israelites to see. You see, things around them were still a mess. And they could be doubting God's promise to them. God had promised all these things, but they hadn't experienced them yet. There were things in the way. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is true of our life also. You know, when we first come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, one of the things that often accompanies it is a belief that everything will now be right and easy. Now that we know Jesus, all of our relationships will be perfect. And I'll know exactly how to handle money in the best possible way. And my work will be out of sight because now I have Jesus. Everything will be perfect. Well, the truth often is, we don't move into instant perfection, do we? We still struggle. You see, we, there is a gap, as it were, between the promise of God and that promise's fulfillment in Christ. You know, we are promised riches in Christ. But many of us still have trouble making ends meet. We are promised victory over sin. But oftentimes, we still struggle against the sin that entangles us. We're promised a family and fellowship. But oftentimes, we're lonely, aren't we? There is that gap between promise and fulfillment. And if you are like me, and I think like Zerubbabel, don't you just wish the problems would get out of the way? So that I could do what I need to do. So that I could receive the promise. And this would be very true of Zerubbabel. The obstacles in his way were pretty large. 
There's the large practical obstacle that he's standing on a bunch of rubble that he's supposed to make a marvelous building. There's the political obstacle that he has opposition around him ready to attack at any time. There's the spiritual obstacle of spiritual warfare from the enemy and the discouragement that has laid hold of God's people. But here again is the good news of the gospel. If you are struggling right now with relationships, with confidence, with hope, God is telling you, you don't have to overcome the obstacles. Do you see that? He says, that, who are you, O great mountain? You will be, become a plain in front of Zerubbabel. God is going to wipe that obstacle out completely. He is going to make the way smooth. This is what the Lord promises in Isaiah chapter 40. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. You see, God is not your cheerleader cheering you on to overcome what is before you. He is telling you there are obstacles in front of you and they are real. And He will take care of them. What He is saying is, leave the mountain leveling to God. You just get to work. Because, you see, that's what obstacles do. They freeze us. We're not sure what we're supposed to do. They stop us from the God-given task that is at hand. And what God says to us is, we need to focus less on the obstacles and more upon Him, and in Him we will find purpose and meaning. Now, it is one thing for the pastor to just stand up here and tell you, everything will be all right. Don't worry about it. But that's not what the text does for us this morning. You see, there's an actual promise given to Zerubbabel. It's almost as if the angel realizes that Zerubbabel would say, yeah, right, that big of a mountain? What the angel says is, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. What the angel does is he gives Zerubbabel and us a picture of what it is like when the task is finished. When he takes that final stone and he puts it on the top of the temple, completed and done. And people shout that it is by the grace of God that this has been accomplished. You see, God promises for us in vivid colors to carry us through. They can see that God's in this. They can see the beauty that's involved in this. And does that not thrill your heart? Isn't it a great blessing to look back and to see the ways in which God has come through for you? Doesn't that provide constancy for your soul? The ability to trust Him more, to forge ahead, looking back and seeing all of the times that God has kept His promises. You see, the whole point of this work that is before Zerubbabel, the whole point that is before the work that we have in the Christian life is not that God wants us to do our fair share. Sometimes I think that's our mentality. I know it is the mentality in households. 
anyone who has more than one child realizes that even if they're not good in math and not very precise, they can calculate to a very fine decimal the amount of work that they are doing versus what a sibling is doing. And it has to be precisely equal or something is unfair. You see, that's not what God is getting at here. He's not jealous. He's not angry. He's not wanting to make sure that we are worthy of His efforts and work. What He has for us in the work He gives to us is the opportunity to know Him better. To know who He is, why He is the way He is, and what He has done. There's a second thing that is involved here. We see in verse 10, For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice, and he shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Now, this is not just a cause for generic rejoicing. And and this is more than just an encouragement to the tasks. What he is doing here is going at our tendency to want to jump to the end of a project. That's what we're like, aren't we? You see, people like shortcuts, don't they? Anyone who's ever driven with a man understands that. There's always a shortcut. You see, we want the quick path of least resistance. As a matter of fact, a shortcut is kind of the opposite of an obstacle. And often, it's hard to even start beginning a task because we look and we say, how do I do this small thing? How does it get me down the road? You know, we spoke about reading through the Bible in a year. It's hard to read through the Bible in a year when we look and we say, okay, I could read three chapters this morning. Now, how is that possibly going to get me through the whole Bible? How do I make it? Or if we're trying to redo all of the plants in the front of our house. We want it to just be done, but instead, first we need to do the weeding. And then we need to lay the mulch. And then we need to prune the plants. And then we need to water. You see, there's so much work that needs to be done, and each step seems like it is so much work and doesn't get us very far down the field. Zerubbabel probably had this feeling after he'd laid the foundation of the temple. Okay, I got it started, but oh my, look at how much work is left. You see, if we're honest again with ourselves, that's often the way we live the Christian life. We want great understanding and knowledge, but we don't want to study the Bible every single day. We want to have fellowship with others. But we're not about to take the initiative and build relationships with other people. Because that's hard. We want spiritual growth, but we don't look for discipleship. Because that's time consuming. We want holiness. But we don't want to go through the daily grind of denying ourselves. You see, what Zechariah is telling us is that God could have given us shortcuts, but He didn't. We have to sow before we can reap. As a matter of fact, 
Zerubbabel would be building the temple for another four years before it was completed. We have to understand that it is the little things in our lives, the little sins that we resist, the little things that we do to follow the Lord, the little ways in which we express ourselves that lead to big things. What matters is not the scale, but the faith that is willing. Let's take something grand and grandiose like world missions. Do we long to see world missions grow throughout all of the world with the gospel spread to every tongue and every tribe? Do you know how world missions begins? World missions begins with one shoemaker saying, I'm going to India. And when William Carey said that, do you know what the response was? You're wasting your time. What do you think you can do? How big of a change can one man make in a place as big as India? A century later, another man said, I'm going to China. His name was Hudson Taylor. And you know what they said to Hudson? Don't go. You're wasting your time. Do you know how big China is? How are you going to support yourself? What are you going to do? What's your plan? And thanks in large part to those two men and the missions that they founded, hundreds and thousands followed and said, I'm going to China. I'm going to India. And the gospel of Jesus Christ has blossomed throughout all of Asia. Because two men decided to take a small step. You see, that's how God works And it's true in the way the kingdom is built, too. You see, some of you are sitting here today saying, you're too small to do anything for the kingdom of God. I think that's especially true of our young people. I can't really do anything. Mom and dad, they're the ones that can do it. I'm just sitting on the sidelines. That's not what God says to Zechariah. He says that you can be at work Start small, one step after the other, and the Lord can do great things. Do not sit on your laurels. Do not wait for others who are more important. Do not wait for tasks that are more important. Do not despise the day of small things, but rejoice in them. There's a third and final picture that we are given in this chapter. Of two olive trees. The picture of two olive trees. And these olive trees are next to this gigantic lamp with all of these lights. Now, if you were used to lighting a lamp, you would look at all of these lights, at all of these wicks, and you would say to yourself, that is really bright, but how long can it last? That's going to use up a ton of oil. You know? And the answer comes in these two olive trees that flow golden oil into the bowl that feeds the lights. There are two of them, one on either side. And Zechariah asks, you know, what are these? Now again, Zechariah here is almost like a young person. 
Dad, what's this? Now, what happens when you don't answer the question? The question comes again, doesn't it? You know it. And the question's going to keep on coming until either you answer it or you blow your top. I would prefer that you answer it. That's what the angel does here. Zechariah really wants to know what's going on here. This is important to him. So he asks a second time. And the angel then answers, almost again like dad and mom. Don't you already know the answer to that? And you could imagine Zechariah thinking in his mind, no, otherwise I wouldn't have asked it. But I think I'm in trouble now because I should have known. You know, he finally got up the courage to ask the question, and now he's being told he should already know. It's something so fundamental and important. And the angel says in verse 14, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. You see, the the olive trees are what supply the lamp. You know, we know the lamp is important. We know the lamp needs oil, and the trees are there to make sure it will never run out. And so, what we have here are a twofold ministry. The ministry of the priest and the ministry of the king, the two anointed ones. The priest that we saw in chapter 3, Joshua, and the king that we see in this chapter, Zerubbabel. Now, This is not to say that those two are all-powerful. Remember, we're talking about the priest with the dirty clothes and the king standing on top of the rubble. They're not going to save the day. But they are the means that God uses to bring about His will. You see, the priestly ministry is a ministry of one who serves to represent a sinful people before God. The kingly ministry is one of being a model believer, of showing the covenant being kept. And it shows the power of God as each of these work on behalf of the people of God. It shows that God takes weak sinners like you and me. And He makes us effective in the kingdom. And that's because there is a twofold kind of equipping that is going on. Because you see, the great example of both of these offices, priest and king, is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who was anointed to be the sacrifice. He is the one who is our king, who rules over us and defends us. And this is indeed our Christian life. Jesus living in us. It's why Paul can write, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, Jesus is the one who puts away our sins. Jesus is the one who rules over our lives. And because of this, we are a kingdom of priests. We fight against our own sin. We proclaim the blood of Christ that saves to a waiting world. We are kings who rule as Jesus' royal officials, extending His rule through our works of righteousness and truth, seeing His kingdom ever expand in the world today. And all of this is possible because of the one who is the true priest and the true king. 
do you see one thing that ties all of these three visions together? There is a calling for us to act, to go forward, to persevere on, to work for the Lord. And in the midst of that calling to work, the Lord is constantly reassuring us, it's not up to us, however. We simply go forward. We go forward in the power and might of our Lord. It is by His Spirit that changes are made in the world, in our lives, and in the church today. Not by might, not by power, but by Christ's Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that You have given to us the power of Your Word and this wonderful picture of how You are at work in our lives. Lord, show us the Lord Jesus Christ. Encourage us by all that He has done. Help us to be Your servants, to be active in Your ministry, to trust You wholly and fully. This we ask, In Christ's precious name, amen.